Men and women are fundamentally different. I've made the mistake in trying to be just like a guy and trying to achieve like a guy and trying to do the same things as guys do. So many women beat themselves up about their bodies. We need to have a new chapter. Just realize like our bodies are here to always protect us first and foremost. That's what adaptation is all about. And really what health is about is the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. But I do think that this whole concept of like, there's no such thing as gender is bullshit. Like we have fundamental biological differences. I'm not saying if you don't want to change your gender, you can't go do that. But this idea that like kids should not be raised with gender is absurd. Like we have totally different responsibilities biologically in terms of what our bodies are here to do. Whether you have kids or not, your body has programming. That's primitive, primitive programming. And we need to sort of honor that and not just ignore it. But I also want men to read this book too because I've had a lot of guy friends try to biohack their partners and they're like, wow, everything I'm doing for me is not working the same for her. She's doing fasting and ketosis and she's not losing any weight. And she's like really going to a stress response. And I look at the girl and I'm like, well, she's already underweight to begin with. She's gonna have stop her period if you're not careful. And so I wanted to really teach women like, you need to learn to honor your body and learn to accept the fact that your body is constantly changing. And also we need to start bringing better research into understanding women's bodies too. We're here, we made it. Yeah, we made it. On a weekend, we're potting on a weekend, which is amazing for a very special guest. Um, this has been coming since 2019 is when we were on the stage at Paleo. Yeah. Right. And and do you remember there was a there was a moment you were talking about where you got a book deal and like things came to a head for you yeah. at Paleo. You know, bless their hearts, Keith and Michelle. Paleo's no longer. I I right? know. I heard that there was a cancellation culture yeah. of, of the Paleo conference, but that conference did you know create the conditions for me to meet my uh, my agent to get my book deal, and so it was really incredible. Which is where this came from, y'all, right here. The yeah. spark factor. The spark this is factor what we're talking really, about today. I, I was on stage with you and Dave, and I realized that Dave was I, Dave wrote the foreword. I mean, first of all, thanks, thanks, Dave. <laughs> but Dave also kind of like coined the term biohacking. But there hadn't been a lot of biohacking books for women written. Yeah. And I remember being at that conference on stage with all these amazing luminaries in health, feeling like I was even, I was on stage with Mark Sisson as well, and I was like, wow, I am just as smart as these people. I know a lot of stuff. I should write books too. And there you go. Three years later, there's a book written. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool because yeah. you don't you don't really realize how powerful just being in the right place at the right moment can be. Yeah. And I felt that so many times in my life. Yeah. And I think about how many people try to force things like that. No. And with this book, like it's an amazing book. People don't realize how much pain and blood and oh sweat. Oh my God, it's crazy. And tears you have to go through. But there's something about maybe your work ethic that I want to tune into. This, sure. is, a good, this is a good jumping off point because yeah. men, men and women are fundamentally different. Yeah. Which you talk about in which, the book. Which by the way, like most of the countries like trying to pretend, not most of the country, but at least some of the liberal parts of the country, and I, by the way, I'm so not liberal or, or conservative. I'm so somewhere far on the sidelines watching the whole thing, <laughs> being like, what is wrong with you people? But um, but I do think that this whole concept of like, there's no such thing as gender is bullshit. Like we have fundamental biological differences and I have friends that are trans. And so I'm not saying if you don't want to change your gender, you can't go do that. But this idea that like kids should not be raised with gender is absurd. Like we have totally different responsibilities biologically. Mm -hmm in terms of what our bodies are here to do. Whether you have kids or not, whether you decide to make companies instead, your body has programming. That's primitive, primitive programming. And we need to sort of honor that and not just ignore it, not just pretend. Like I've made the mistake 
and trying to be just like a guy and trying to achieve like a guy and trying to do the same things as guys do. Mm. And let me tell you, when you're really menstrual and you're like having to go show up at meetings and you feel like garbage and you're like, so you just want to curl up and be in your bed. It's, it's a challenge. Like we, women do live in a man's world. We're expected to behave like men. We're expected to basically just ignore our menstrual periods. And these are changing our reality every week of the month. And so I wanted to really teach women, like you need to learn to honor your body and learn to listen to your body and learn to accept the fact that your body's constantly changing. And also we need to start bringing better research into, you know, research in all fields, whether it's mainstream medicine or biohacking into understanding women's bodies too. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Bomb drop already. The podcast that I want to really unpack with you is this differentiation and you went for it like in the <laughs> first, in the first five minutes, I think it's really beautiful because people are politically charged around the fact that we are, there's one camp that says we're different. And then there's another camp that says we're the same. There's no such thing as gender. And in my mind, that's how all communistic or even totalitarian regimes start. They start by making the truth false and falsity true. Oh my God. And that's the part where I'm like, okay, Finally, someone's written a book for women that want to grasp this element of biohacking, but they're not a man. Well, the thing <laughs> that's about a big it point. is that I also want men to read this book too, because I want men to realize that I've had a lot of guy friends try to biohack their partners and they're like, wow, everything I'm doing for me is not working the same for her. Hmm. Like she's doing fasting and ketosis and she's not losing any weight. And she's like really going to a stress response. And I look at the girl and I'm like, well, she's already underweight to begin with. She doesn't need to lose more weight. <laughs> like she's going to stop her period if you're not careful. And, you know, and so there's, it's really about examining the biological imperative and, and what we're really here to do biologically. And then whether we have kids or not, like your body is like constantly sensing and integrating the environment and deciding, is this peacetime? Can I have sex and make children? Or is this wartime and do I need to protect myself and put up, you know, the defenses and make sure that I, you know, basically what it's called is this, the cell danger response. This is by um, Robert Navio. It's a mitochondrial researcher. He basically describes the fact that like your cells will literally change their metabolisms to protect you in order to survive. And so when people are struggling with weight loss, especially women who are very highly stressed and they're like, I can't lose weight no matter what I try. It's like, well, you're stressed out. Your body's not going to let you lose that weight. Like that's okay. And that's a protective mechanism. So just honor that, you mm -hmm. know, like I gained a few pounds getting this book launched and I'm like loving my body regardless of where I'm at, because I'm like, wow, this is my body trying to take care of me. You know, it's yeah. a stressful time to be launching a book. It's the beginning of a new year. Sure. I'm loving the process. I'm having a blast, but I'm doing a lot of travel and I'm like, you know, it's hard to be consistent with your exercise regimens when you're in a different city every week for like three weeks. Um, that's okay. But w so many women beat themselves up about their bodies. And it's like, we need to find a new, we need to have a new chapter. Like we need to all move forward and just realize like our bodies are here to always protect us first and foremost. That's what adaptation is all about. And really what health is about is the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. It's not this pie in the sky idea that the World Health Organization sold us mm -hmm. where it was like, oh, it's a complete absence of disease or infirmity, infirmary. I'm like, no, that's, that's not their health. definition of health. That's their definition of health. It's so bullshit. It's like, no, that does, that's not real. Tell me a person who's healthy who doesn't occasionally get a cold or a flu. Mm -hmm. Tell like maybe once in it's going to happen at least one point in the next ten years. You're going to get an infection. It doesn't happen to everybody, but it does happen to you. And like there, the number of people who are completely impervious to the realities of life are far and few between. Mm -hmm. Even the healthiest people I know, 
are still subject to risk. They they still their kids still bring home viruses from school. Well, that's actually part of life. That's, that's part the of life. Organic cycle. That's why we have an immune system. Exactly. Otherwise, we'd be a clean slate of glass with nothing irregular exactly. in our bodies. Exactly. So, like, I look at health as this sort of constant interplay between us and our environment, and how well we are coping with the challenges that we face. This podcast is brought to you by Cozy Earth, creators of viscose bamboo and linen bedding, loungewear, and temperature-regulating, naturally breathable clothing that feels freaking amazing and that is sourced responsibly. I mean, let's face it, cheap clothes wear out fast and they fade. But there's a reason why Cozy Earth has been featured on Oprah's Favorite Things. I've been rocking Cozy Earth's men's hoodie and pants for a while now, and this unique fabric provides next-level comfort. They have this four-way stretch technology that whether you're a man or a woman, you are going to absolutely love these clothes. They're the most cushy, comfy, cozy, good-looking, and durable clothing I have ever purchased. I was just telling Carrie Michelle this yesterday, how much I love these clothes, and I'm pretty much going to buy one of everything. (laughs) You can take a test drive. Just head over to CozyEarth.com. Use the code Josh, J-O-S-H. They're offering you a super generous discount, 40% off, 40% off site-wide for a limited time. Use the code Josh to get 40% off at CozyEarth.com. Mm, I love that. Okay, let's go way back. Let's pull the e-brake because you're wearing the Stanford uh, sweatshirt today. I did. I, I'm wearing so, it because like I used to teach there and then I moved to Austin and they were like, well, we're going to replace you with someone else to teach your course. And I was like, well, I'm not coming because, back. Because you moved to Austin? I mean, it was generally like a mutual thing where the, I okay. was like, hey guys, I'm moving to Austin. Because you had to teach it in person? Yeah, they wanted me to be in person. And I was Got like, it. I'm not coming back for a few months to teach in person. Like, I love you, but this was three years of working for, they don't really pay you by the way. Like, mm. It's like you're, you're spending enormous amounts of time. And then Stanford's like one of the most expensive schools in the world. And they pay you like a fraction of what you put. Maybe because it. they feel like, Oh, you get to say that you work. It's a, cre- with Stanford. It's a credibility thing. And yeah. I don't care. It's not, I didn't do it for the money. I did it for the students. And frankly, the thing I realized was like, I was still only helping like a handful of students every year, mm. like 30 students at a time. And I was like, I want to get my book out there. I want to get my course launched online. And I want to take all that stuff that I've learned and get it out to thousands of people if I can. So that was my main intention. It was like, I love, love, love Stanford. And it was such a motivational thing for me to get to go there and like be in this incredibly innovative campus and feel like, oh my God, I'm smart enough to be teaching at Stanford. This is a big deal. But also there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of bureaucracy and politics there. And I can imagine. it's not really my scene. It's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. I felt like I was always like, I was there and I always kind of felt like, this is so weird to be teaching here. Cause like, this is like a country club <laughs> and I'm like a rebellious doctor who left her residency, started her le- medical practice. Talking about psychedelics and talking biohacking. Talking about psychedelics and-, and biohacking. And I'm like, I always felt a little bit out of place, but also kind of like, how cool is it that I'm here? This is so crazy. So three years was all I really needed. I got my, yeah. I got my fill and I, I got a lot of new friends from it, but, um, but I just felt like the frontier is like media, you know, mm-hmm. I want to, I want to be out in the world. The frontier to make actual change. Yeah. And I, and here's the thing. I wasn't tenured like Andrew Huberman. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a lab. So I wasn't really tied to the campus, which um, if I were him, I mean, I wouldn't obviously like that go because that's his life. But um, academia is cool. It's not really something that I see myself doing long term. It's not. It's it's great, but it's not really for me. Like I I'm I want to be in the world traveling. I want to be working with companies. I want to be building companies. Like you can't actually you can build companies if you work at Stanford. But if you anything you make as like if you, if you're a tenured professor at um, at Stanford, 
anything you make is going to be owned by the the school first. And mm. so like, there's that risk as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just like, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a doctor in the world. That's, you, that's where I'm at now. 2011 or 2010 is when you work for Kaiser. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 20, 2011, 20, 10, 20, 10 20, plus 12. years ago. So yeah. there was something where I was actually working at Kaiser and I was doing this master's at Berkeley. And then I halfway through, halfway through my, my training, I was like, Oh my God, there's something deeply wrong with this system. Yes. I, was it a moment? Like that was my question for you. Did you was, feel like you woke up one morning? You're like, I can't do this sick care. You you went into it as healthcare. Yeah. But it turned into right away, I'm sure. As I really, sick care. really thought that I could change the world through m- mainstream medicine. I was like, I can do it. I can fit in. And I couldn't. It was like a it was like a square peg in a round hole. And you know, you're in this hospital and you're there, there were some things that I really f- disagreed with. And one was the food that we were serving kids with cancer. They were giving, I mean, they were just like, they were just eating cake and candy and stuff. And I was like, why are we allowing these things to even be sold in the hospital to begin with? And then, I mean, even Kaiser had better food than almost any place in, in any hospital in the country. And they still allowed really crappy packaged processed foods to be fed to cancer patients. That just blows my mind. And then um, that was a big one. And then the second one was, just the level of, I got literally chastised and ripped a new asshole by my program director for basically going outside the scope of my job because there's a dad and a daughter and he was about to, he was basically going to disown his daughter for being gay. And I went out of my way to reunite them because I really had a deep, deep, deep belief that like this man didn't understand his daughter and she was acting out because of her relationship with him. And it would ruin their lives for them to be the first for a high school student to be kicked out of the house and to be like disconnected from her family because she's gay is like crazy. And, um, I have a sibling who's homosexual and I remember when she came out and what that was like for our family. And I just didn't want to see that happen to this young woman. And so I got, I, I got them back together. I, I like sat them both down. I had a conversation with them. The psychologist on the, on the floor turned me in and told me that I was overstepping my boundaries and that I was not um, responsible for this facet of my patient's life. And that's when I realized, okay, so the food is all fucked up. And then the fact that relationships were not really, like they were not part of medicine. And the fact that I was even trying to help in that area and I was in trouble for that. And by the way, I the outcome ended up really well. <laughs> like the outcome ended up really good for the family. And so I got in trouble for that. And I was like, I was just like, this is not okay. And then I would be on um, nights and patients of mine would pass away and nobody would tell me. And then I would come back two weeks later and I'd be like, so what happened to this patient? And they're like, oh, she's dead. Mm. And I was like, I had no time to grieve. I was so deeply sad. And no one invited me to the funeral. I felt like we weren't trained to handle death. And then we weren't even, we were just expected to like let it roll off our shoulders and move on to the next one. And it just felt so dehumanizing to be honest with you. Um, and I was so unhappy and I was not liking the person I was becoming because Who I were felt, you becoming? I just felt like I was becoming a cold shell of a person, you know, I was like burned, almost robotic, mechanistic. robotic, burned out, like f- suppress your feelings, don't feel your feelings. And then meanwhile, I remember one of my attendings came to work and she had lymph nodes popping out of her entire body, her neck, her arms. And she was just like going on to rounds. Like it was no big deal. And I remember thinking this woman has lymphoma. Like she's sick, something's seriously wrong with this woman. And she was expected to just come to work and work, even though she was clearly ill. Mm. And I'm like, this system's going to make me sick. I'm going to get ill. I'm going to get sick. It's going to break me. And I, um, 
I ended up getting, so I ended up resigning and then I got a really bad viral infection and I got basically chronically fatigued. Fortunately, I was able to get a job that enabled me to work from home. But I, if I hadn't have gotten that job, like right out of my residency, I don't know what I would have done. Do you feel like looking back that your body was waiting for you to have the rest period so it could actually express being sick? Probably. I mean, I've it, heard this concept before. It was a pretty clear infection though. Like it was a pretty, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's right. Like, like on like, an energetic level, you needed the space to actually be sick in to detox from what you went through. You know, I think that that's probably true. And I think that I was running on really low energy capacity and my immune system was shot. Yeah. And I was, uh, a welcome host for an infection. And it was what literally instigated my desire to become a doctor that optimizes health because I wasn't healthy. And I was like, I want, I, I just, I know I had built a course about how to help doctors become healthy in medical school. And it became a, it was an entire course in the, in the, um, curriculum. So I had already, such a paradox. I mean, I had already built, I had already known what it was like to be healthy, but I couldn't be healthy in my residency because yes. it was so unhealthy. Yeah. So I, remember thinking, I know what it, I know that health is what I'm supposed to be here for. I know this is my purpose, but I don't know how I, I need to figure this out because like, I know that this is what I'm supposed to do. And so it was from the grace of God that I got introduced to a bunch of doctors that became mentors of mine who were really working outside of the mainstream system. And they were doctors to executives in Silicon Valley that were paying, they were concierge doctors. All of them were concierge. Mm. None of them were insurance. And so they were all like, one of them was optimizing. One of them was like primary care with a red, car, with a red, red carpet. Another one was, um, was like mind-body medicine for executives and also doing like health optimization. And the other one was like full health optimization, like really high-end, like, um, like this guy had worked for Formula One. Like he worked on helping people with performance and um, lifestyle optimization. And I was like, oh my God, I want to do what you do. Will you teach me? And he was like, uh... <laughs> And then he bought me a textbook and he wrote down a list of labs, most most of which were from Genova Diagnostics. And he's like, look, read this textbook, learn these labs and just start just start seeing patients. And I'm like, well, how am I supposed to evaluate them? He's like, develop your own intake system. And I was like, okay. So I literally sat by myself because like after I got in that job in, um, in tech, I was doing personalized medical research. And that's where I met these doctors because they were working for this well-known billionaire. And I, um, so as I was working for that company, I was very much learning about how to use data to drive better decisions, how to use, how to get into the research to answer questions for clients. Mm. But after working there for about nine months, I was like tired of working for another company and I wanted to work for myself. So I started my own practice and that's when that doctor started telling me how to do it. And then he's like, but I didn't know how to build an intake system. So I actually went to Mark Hyman's website, found his um, ultra wellness center. like, And I literally deconstructed the entire intake system. And then I would study all these other functional doctors. I took their intake systems and I created my own 60 page intake system. And I was like, I'm going to go into the extreme of like, how do I evaluate a person's health? So I took the mainstream systems, allopathic intake system, and then took the functional medicines intake system. And then I honestly like started ordering labs and I just started learning how to optimize health. And then 10 years later, I've taught at Stanford. I worked with 50 companies. I've worked with a bunch of amazing executives, investors, and entrepreneurs, like world-class people. Um, worked with Academy Award winners and wrote a book. And it's like, I, I took a leap of faith. It was terrifying and scary. But one, one of my friends sat me down. And he said, if you don't believe in yourself, nobody will. And I was like crying. And I was like, okay, wiping my tears. I'm going to do it. <laughs> and then it just like, and it was not easy, but the, I'll tell you what, the one thing that got me through the cha most challenging pieces of, of these years 
was my community. I had amazing community in Silicon Valley of amazing entrepreneurs, amazing investors, amazing artists, musicians, and just people who were like, we believe in you. Just keep going. Just keep going. Don't stop. You know, I remember Jeff Bland at a conference once. He said to me, Molly, I've been watching you. I know this is hard figuring out where you're going, but like you're on your path and don't stop. Keep going. Mm. And it's just really cool. You said by the grace of God, you met the right people. Yeah. You were raised Christian. Yeah, I was raised probably, Christian, but I don't really subscribe you to. You feel different now than I you mean, did back I mean, I still believe in, I still love praying to Jesus, you mm -hmm. know, but mm -hmm. I also love Hindu goddesses, you know, and I love Buddhism and I love Judaism. I'm technically Jewish um, genetically. And so I, I've taken courses on world religions and I, I would say I'm definitely more of a Gnostic than anything, oh, Okay. which is like somebody who, who really believes that you have to see for yourself and know for yourself. Yeah. We're going to do some Zamner juice here. Shout out to Mark and mm. the Zamner. I'm going to get some of this cause it just it tastes good. It is amazing. I it's got it's all got the some, It's got some in GABA in there. Gotta love some GABA. Let's see some GABA. Well, I want to go back because you you came from this upbringing where it was probably pretty strict, it was, I assume. There, dancing was not allowed in my school. Was your mom and dad entrepreneurial? My dad was. Your dad was. Yeah. So do you feel like as you started to figure this shit out that that DNA was expressing in you? I think a you? lot of it was my um, the being, being Lebanese. So my mom's side is um, Jewish, Dutch. My dad's side is Lebanese, mm. Christian. And so I was raised very Christian because obviously we, we lived in the Midwest and it was more of a Christian vibe there. And I went to Christian grade school, went to youth group, went to like church. We like, you know, it was a thing. Um, and I, you know, kind of at the same time felt like even though I was a good Christian, I was, I was always kind of like, I don't really feel right about bringing people to Jesus. Like this doesn't feel right to me. Because oh. um, I really felt like, your belief systems are yours to believe and like what you need to discover for yourself. And I knew that there were so many religions in the world. I was like, well, how are we to say that ours is right and they're all wrong? Yeah. And this whole like, I always felt really conflicted about like people in Africa who maybe had never seen any, you know, maybe never, they were never exposed to, 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 to Jesus. How could they be going to hell? You know, that felt really wrong for me is like, that doesn't seem fair. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do credit Christianity for giving me a strong moral compass for giving me a strong sense of, um, unconditional love. Like I know what that feels like. Cause I have a family that's been so un unbelievably loving and love was a big part of our family culture and food and whatnot. So I think my mom's side, my mom's mother was like super brilliant, like Val Victorian of her class stockbroker and her side of the family. Um, and my grandfather from my, on my mom's side comes from like a long, um, he wasn't super successful, but his brothers and his brother's kids were like extraordinary, extraordinarily successful. And then my, my grandfather actually grew mushrooms in Yuma, Arizona. And when he died, my mom found an entire like cabinet of mushroom spores. And I was like, you threw those away. Why didn't you save those, <laughs> those for were me? Medicine. Those were my inheritance. <laughs> <She's> like, <laughs> but, but, but like Amsterdam and like Holland culture, psychedelics are cool. Right. And like, Art is really a big is a big part of our family. My sister's an artist. Yes. So my dad's side's very entrepreneurial. My dad was a commercial realtor, took over a bankrupt family business, transformed it over many, many years of hard work. So I saw his work ethic and we had a really strong work ethic in our family. And so the business mind comes from my dad. The creative, creative mind comes from my mom. And, you know, probably the psychedelics comes from my grandfather. This is so cool. We were literally just talking about the book that yeah. I'm writing, The Emotional Epigenetics. And I, and I think about the ways that we either can turn on or turn off 
our genes. Yeah. Epi, epi, the portion that sits on top of the gene that controls and expresses it. Yeah. And you talk about in your book how there's this huge difference between like what women can take in and put out, how they're being in this world is different than men. And also one thing that was utterly fascinating to me was something I had never heard before. Men protect the tribe, vasopressin dominant. Yes. Women create and nurture life, oxytocin yes, dominant. This is crazy. Let's talk about that. I literally have the best advisors of all time for my company, Adama Bioscience. And one of my advisors, I actually met through her husband. So her husband, Stephen Porges, who's the po mm, creator polyvagal of polyvagal theory. theory. He is a world-class expert on stress, right? So like she studies oxytocin. She is a world-class expert on love and attachment. And so it's beautiful that they have this polarity of their of their work, right? Like how crazy is that these two people came together and have these two very complementary skill sets of understanding human health and biology. That's a marriage. It's That's wild. Marriage. I mean, they're such good people. Yeah. They're like, they're both extraordinary geniuses. And I mean, just being friends with them is like the, the mentorship I've gotten from Sue Carter has been one of the most, she's like my fairy, she's like my fairy godmother. Like she's this beautiful soul who's got the mind of a genius. And she just taught me about this natural aspect, this, this, this vasopressin oxytocin relationship. And the fascinating thing about veterans with PTSD is that when they measure their vasopressin levels and their oxytocin levels, they've tanked their oxytocin and they've massively ramped up their vasopressin. And what does MDMA do in MAPS trials? MDMA is a massive oxytocin releasing agent because it releases a ton of serotonin. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it, it literally, the ther theory is, is that it's potentially causing a rebalancing of these neuropeptides. And I'm just like, I really want to run that study to show that that's, that's how it works. But, um, and because of the altered state, is there more neuroplasticity available yes. in that state, which then makes the changes sustainable? Yeah, exactly. That's and, the whole magic of MDMA. Yeah, exactly. And it's also, you're taking these fearful memories and you're reprogramming them as a safe, like, okay, that's a safe memory that can go into long-term memory. Mm. So that's pretty cool stuff. Like the integration of all this, but yeah. So Sue was basically like, I, I realized it wasn't until I like had dated someone in the last year who was like clearly had some trauma and was very base depressed dominant. It was probably the most masculine guy I've ever dated. And I realized that like, whoa, like his wiring was not, it was like warrior wiring, you know? And I, I was really attracted to this person because they were so masculine. But then I realized that they had no concept of like nurturance and love. And I was like, I gotta, I, it's not gonna work. The oxytocin work. was offline. It was super offline. This is not gonna work. Yeah. And so, um, but at the same time, you know, I, I really feel like, um, you know, women, we, we don't realize that this is our superpower, our ability to really connect and nurture. And we're like, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm a high powered woman. I have got, I've got a lot of my plate and I do feel in touch with my masculinity, but I think that my mind, like what, what's powerful that I'm realizing is that when I'm really dropping into my femininity, I'm even more powerful. And I didn't know that. And I was like, I was thinking that by behaving like a man in Silicon Valley, it, that I would be like, I would be more powerful. And no, no, in fact, I'm actually, I've got more, my gentleness and my, my calm and my ease is far more powerful than me intensely being in CEO vibes. How so? How so exactly? Because, Especially in Because I'm Valley. not terrifying to people mm -hmm. because people just like, if, if I'm at a party and I'm calm and relaxed and I'm not trying to be on and I'm just like sitting and being my comfortable, relaxed self, people just come over me, come over to me and they'll like touch my hair and they'll like naturally cuddle up with me. And there's just like this attraction magnetism. And then when I'm in like full CEO mode, 
I've literally seen men that I've just met at an event and I like start listing off my accomplishments and they're just like, they're just like so turned off. They're like that. They're like that is that. That's me and my masculine. I don't need to show off. Like I don't need to list off all the things that I've done. But I think a lot of women were th- we we thought that oh, if I just achieve as much as a man, I'll be as I'll be attractive to men. Actually, achievement's great. Don't get me wrong, but it's not really doing a, a, a massive amount of favors in the mm-hmm, dating world. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, like men are somewhat intimidated by by women who are in their masculine all the time. Do you feel like they're intimidated by them or do you feel like that's the, what they, that's the direction they're going in. And so why would they want somebody that they need to quote compete with? Maybe that's Is it that. intimidation or is it more like, Oh my God, is this another thing I have to compete with? That's that. Which, it might be I, some I think, of both. I think it's kind of like that. And I have seen that in relationships in Silicon Valley where there are two very powerful people in a power couple. Sometimes there is a competition. Um, yeah. And by the way, I'm not going to turn off my ambition because guys are like maybe intimidated by it. What I'm going to do is realize that like it doesn't need to be front and center at all times. I can be, what am I trying to prove? You know, like in so many ways in Silicon Valley, I felt like I had something to prove. I felt like I had to prove myself because this environment was so cutthroat and so competitive that I was like, I got to show that I can do what I can do. And I, and I think I did a lot of things, which were great. But what I'm really learning about and what I'm what my sort of the frontier of my career is about is like the most important thing we can do for our health is, is maintain optimal human connection with others. And that means connection with our partners, connection with our family, connection with our loved ones, connection with our community, connection with our friends. And like that's so much more important to me right now than like like I, I've already accomplished almost everything I want to do. <laughs> like um, I'm not gonna necessarily not continue working on my companies and this and that, but I'm just realizing like the thing that really matters when the world's chaotic and crazy is who can you trust? Mm -hmm. And so deepening those relationships and really deepening those friendships is like, that's kind of like, I mean, that's why I built a company around it. Cause I was like, how do we make this easier for people? How do we make this possible for people? There's a fractal to what you talked about in the very beginning where there's this kind of forced confusion in the media about boys thinking they're girls and girls thinking they're boys. And that fractals out into then adults trying to, give a helping hand when actually they're giving a harming hand to have gender reassignment for kids and whatnot. I think, and I wonder how you feel. I think it's a clue for the the fact that we are totally dysregulated mentally and how that mental dysregulation then starts to dictate our physical abnormalities. In other words, what's coming out of our bodies and what's showing up for us with like the blood sugar resistance that we have and like all the insulin problems and the health problems overall, Mm -hmm. they're a byproduct of a spiritual malady. Yes. And it's the spirituality that we're actually lacking in the world, yeah. which informs the mind, then informs the body and vice versa. You know, I wonder if you could riff on that. I mean, I, to be honest with you, I, I went 10 years in my 20s without any spiritual practice whatsoever because I, was, I had experienced some traumas in college and I just felt very dissociated from my body for a long time. And mm. it was a really, my 20s were, were not pleasant, honestly. I didn't have- Were you angry at God? No, I was, um, I was just, I wasn't, I was numb. I was so numb. Um, I mean, sexual trauma can can really numb you. And um, fortunately, I was in a place like maybe three years ago. And I would say like moving to the Bay Area, that that really shifted my reality. Like I started really working on myself. I started really doing, I mean, every every kind of alternative kind of therapy you can do. I tried like rolfing and acupuncture and you know, going to Esalen Institute like 15 times and like, you name it, I did all the different things. But all all that work I did on myself and like woke me up 
really got me into my body, got me, I mean, psychedelics played a role for sure. Um, music festivals, Burning Man, um, you know, everything. And, but, but there was a point a few years ago, 2019, where I'd gone through a really rough breakup and a really rough business readjustment because I had fundraised for a company that I built with this guy that I was seeing. And it just did not turn out the way I anticipated it to, to go. And I had to walk away from everything. And it was I was heartbroken and I was devastated. And I remember asking the universe for a taste of enlightenment and it kicked me in the face with a spiritual awakening. And I was like, oh my God, uh, I was not prepared for this kundalini shit. And fortunately I got really into meditation. I did like three 10 day retreats in six months. And I was like, I couldn't help it. I had to go meditate. Did you do the Vipassana in the desert? It was like Vipassana, but called Kpassana. Oh. And it's like bougie Vipassana on nature reserves and beautiful homes. <laughs> and, Where you and, get to actually eat like three meals a day instead of two. And, yeah. Like really good food. Okay. Um, Why did you choose that instead of the hardcore Goinka? Cause I think that the Western culture is softer than the Indian culture. And we may need a softer approach to my, to like, you know, making these approaches. <laughs> that's brilliant. I totally agree. You know, I mean, also I did like, not agree with the methodology. And also time. like the, the lack of embodiment of Vipassana is, is, is challenging for me. So it's entire purpose is to erase your body, which I don't, don't get me wrong. I think that's great. But when, so this guy, Jorge Yant, she, he's a businessman. And so was Gwenka, by the way. And Goenka learned his meditation style from a Japanese businessman. So these guys actually were operating in the world. But Jorge was just such a, he's a G. He's a cool ass dude. And he created a form of meditation that was, um, you wake up in the morning at like five in the morning and the bell rings. And then, you know, maybe I'll make some tea and we sit and we meditate. And then, well, first you do this thing called shake, rattle and roll which is like you get into your body and it's like a kind of Qigong practice. Mm -hmm. And then you feel really good when you get into your body after 30 minutes and it's really gentle. And then you sit and meditate and then you have a little break and breakfast. And then you um, afterwards have a little bit of free time. If you're in Maui with him, you get to go to the nude beach. <laughs> that's just, that's really fun. Little beach. Um, or just, um, or, the, or, or you can go to the big beach too. But if, if, um, and then, then then you'd have uh, another meditation session and then lunch and then breath work and yin yoga in the afternoon. And that's just, and he, he started doing that with like an hour and now he does like two hours of this. Mm. And then um, another meditation and then dinner and then evening meditation and then a documentary. And then there's usually like some time in there for um, like some exercise so I would go like swim in the ocean with like coral. It was mm. just unbelievable. It's so cool because traditions are meant to be evolved. Like not just because yeah. Gwenka, just because there is a tradition of anything, medicine, yeah. Vipassana, yeah. spiritual growth. Like people that know that Alan Watts right there in, Sal in I think it was Sausalito. Yeah. He did not have the perfect personal life. Like his personal life was kind of shambles. He's very wise, gave a lot of wisdom. Same thing with Gwenka, same thing with um, medicine. Like there's beautiful parts of medicine. There's also a shadow. Yeah. And so it seems like you went out there and just like when you, it's so funny, just like when you created the figure at outableness going on Mark Hyman's website and like figuring out what you're going to do with your life. Yeah. You, you really had to break a traditional mold. Yeah. And that's exactly what, honestly, that's what I did too. Yeah. I'm the only entrepreneur 
in, in both sides of my family. I'm the only one that thought it to be true. Yeah. Which is something we even talked about, like when you came in, yeah. like, the thoughts that we think, they create our lives. Like yes. if I think something, we're talking about the Leela quantum. Yeah. So so then when you get to this point where you're like, you've done so much deep spiritual work, yeah. you've you've been in this recreation process. Well, don't process. get me wrong. The spiritual work is still ongoing. For sure. <laughs> but you've been in this recreation process. At some point you're like, Silicon Valley, I'm out. I'm not going to be here anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else. What were you looking for when you left? And did you find it? I hope you're loving this podcast as much as I am. I want to give you this gift of awareness around energy. Look, it's totally normal to have a midday energy drop. You don't need to shame yourself or feel bad about that. But there is something you can do when it comes to the energy that's needed when you simply don't have any to give. You can generate it from the inside out by drinking exogenous ketones. A lot of people think that ketones are just for weight loss, and yes, they do help with ghrelin, the hunger hormone for weight loss, but they're also incredibly powerful for the mitochondria, cognition, and most of all, the power plant of energy that is required at about 2, 3, or 4 p.m. when your body naturally dips due to circadian rhythm. Now, if you're not getting enough sleep, which many of us aren't, or if you've had too much lunch, too many carbs or sugar, or you just have an energy drop. My absolute favorite way to boost my energy and combat really this midday energy drop is by drinking a shot of Ketone IQ from my friends and the company who is backing this podcast that believes in this mission for you and I to live our life well. They're called HVMN, otherwise known as Health Via Modern Nutrition. I've had the founder, Michael, on the show. We're doing a second podcast I love this company. I love the product. These exogenous ketones start burning fat for fuel and they do it by mimicking what happens when we're fasting in nature. But you don't have to fast. I promise you can still eat food. Head over to joshtrent.com forward slash HVMN. Use the code Josh, J-O-S-H. You get 20% off, which is a great savings to jumpstart your metabolism in the afternoons without caffeine, without stimulants, without coffee just clean energy. It's the beautiful biohack of the century, I'll tell you. joshtrend.com forward slash HVMN. Use code Josh, save 20% off your ketone IQ shots so you can beat that midday energy drop and be a participant in your life again. Yeah, so in those six months of my nervous system becoming kind of like a loose, like kind of like a, a, I felt like there was a wire cut from like a power line and it was like all over the place. It was so much energy and I didn't know what to do with it. This was so, your Kundalini awakening. Kundalini awakening, yeah. And I- From the yogic practice? No, no, no. So that happened after three days of fasting in Sonoma with a guy that I thought I was, I was, I thought I was on a date with. And he turns out- You thought out, you were on a date? I thought we were on a date. And then on the way there, he's like, so I've been depressed since I was a kid. And I was like, what? Not another guy who's depressed. And then- um, and then he's since overcome it, which is great. But, um, so I was fasting and then I was in sunlight in nature surrounded by fruit trees. And then I, um, we, 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 we refed with a really beautiful meal. And then, um, the next day I went to this hotel that he owned and I was using, um, the weight, I did weight training, hit training and sauna. Cause I was like, I had so much energy. Cause like I was, I had a lot of sexual tension that wasn't being expressed. So I ran it out and I exercised it out and then I go meet with my community and I get super plugged in. Right. And all of these things are things I read about in the book, right? Fasting, hit training, weight training, nature, sunlight, ketosis, um, you know, plugging in with your community. And normally I wouldn't recommend doing all those things all at once, but you know, time and a place. And 
then I go connect with my community and I go home to my bed that night and I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking to myself, wouldn't it be great if you could go to the doctor and you could get a peak experience as medicine instead of crappy drugs and surgery? And I started having this full body involuntary orgasmic experience where I was like, what is this? What is happening? What is going on? And I remember thinking, I got to tell my friends about this cool thing. Like, I don't know what this was, but this is bananas. And then since that, I started becoming hypersensitive to all of the energy in my environment. I was living in the mission. I could feel all of the homeless people's pain as I was walking down the street. It was like deeper, deeper empathy. I just saw San Francisco, it was suffering. And I was like, and then there was the fires. And then there was fires in Malibu. I was intending to move to Malibu. That's right. I remember that. And there was that. fires in Malibu. So there was fires in Northern California, fires in Malibu. I felt it was like too much fire and brimstone for me. And I was and I was going through this so much change and I didn't know what to do with all this energy. And I remember thinking to myself, as I was doing these meditation retreats, I started seeing my shadow come out and I started seeing myself for who I really was and all the down, all the parts of myself I didn't want to look at. And I was like, God damn it, I have been a problem. I've done this and that. I've got too much of an ego. I'm kind of an asshole sometimes. Like, why, why am I like having to see all of this? And it just made me realize like you need to sit with this and you need to address all of this. You need to work on this. And um, so I said, Mom, Dad, you know, I was visiting them for Thanksgiving. I'm like, just so you know, I'm taking up a sabbatical and I'm going to Maui. And they're like, what's wrong with you? You're never going to find a partner. Like, what are you thinking? I'm like, look, I don't know what's going on in the world right now, but I feel like something really bad is coming. And I just feel like I need to get my, I need to get grounded somewhere. And this I is to, early 2020. This is 2020, 2019. And the funniest thing is that that summer when I'd had that spiritual awakening, I had this deep inclination to start studying viruses. And I was like, I feel like I don't understand viruses and I don't, like, what is this microvirome? I know about the fungus in my body. I know about the bacteria in my body, but I don't know shit about viruses. And I had some clients with chronic fatigue and I had read this book, um, Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. It's mitochondria, not hypochondria. Hmm. And I was, it was by Amy Myhill. And I was studying viruses, studying chronic fatigue, trying to understand how to help these people heal. And thinking to myself, we're really overdue for a plague and we are not prepared for it. And um, that's really strange. And I was like joking with my friends at a dinner. And I was like, you know, guys, you know, we've got fire, we've got floods, there's plagues in Africa. I mean, it's probably going to be viruses next, you know? And they're or like- aliens. Oh, really? Well, we know <laughs> yeah. they're already here. So, yeah. um, I, and they're like, don't say that. And I was like, look, I don't know why I've said that, but just, I just think it's probably going to happen. And then my biggest regret is not actually playing the- stock market more, more effectively. <laughs> Cause I was so, oh. I was so afraid of what was going on. I was so, in, I was in a fear state when it all happened, but, um, I was in Maui for three months and that's when I really sat with myself and was like, you got to change your life. You got to change a lot of things in your life. And it was like, you know, it was, it, it healed me. Like Maui really, really, really healed me. Maui is just like Sedona. We were actually in Maui early 2020. We yeah. spent a month there in January. What? I was there. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Um, and so I, I thought about like, when you were going through that change, you were you were going through a death and rebirth of some kind. Yeah, the book was already online mentally at that. I point. I had thought about the, the the book and written out notes. When I know you're not supposed to write things, but I was writing the notes at a meditation okay. retreat. And I did, um, that, I did that too. Yeah, was, I did it. A, I saw. I found a pen outside. Yeah, somebody left a pen outside. I'm like, this is a sign from the universe. Yeah. So uh, I cheated. I mean, it, I really think that even that role is dumb. Yeah, so exactly. much, so much comes to you, you know. Right, right. And like, when, I, the, when the muse enters, why not take advantage? Yeah, I like painted at one of my meditation retreats, and I these paintings are so there's such processing, you mm -hmm, know. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, like basically, 
there was definitely a death and rebirth and definitely I felt like just a sense of, you know, you need to get like, there was this weird sense of like, we're, we're in the peace before the storm. These meditation retreats were in pure paradise. And it was like this very deep calm before the storm. And I remember mm. telling Jorge, I'm like, Jorge, I have a really bad feeling about next year. I don't know what's coming, but I feel really bad about it. And he's like, don't worry. Anything that comes next year, it'll be, the world will be better afterwards. And I was like, True, okay. but, but painfully learned. Painfully. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. And, and I have to say like the pandemic certain, certainly, I think somewhat threw a wrench in the whole spiritual growth because it was like, it was just, I was in fight or flight for a lot of 2020, you know? And I remember getting, I was pretty close to burnout at the end of 2020 because I had done way too many things that year. I mean, it was in, I was like biased towards action. So I was just like constantly overworking myself because I didn't know how to sit still. Mm. And so I had to like, fix my body after that period of time. And then that's when I really, you know, I was actually, the book came to me during the meditation retreat um, in April, in uh, August of 2019. And then the proposal I was working on during the first half of 2020. And then I sold the book. Um, I mean, I didn't fully burn out, thank God, because I actually like stopped myself and course corrected. But somewhere of like 90% of people felt like they were close to burnout in 2020. So it's not like it was just me. But I, I, I got the book deal in 2021, the very beginning of 2021. And then I got vaccinated and started traveling. And 2021 was a fucking blast for me because like flights were cheap. I got to see all my friends again. It really made me realize how much people matter to human health. And like, I was like high on life. I was high on life because my friends were, I was like hanging out with people again. And I'd been isolated by myself for so long. And I was like, I need people. I need my friends. And I, I started seeing my friends again. And then, um, to be honest, like 2021 was great. 2022, I think I, um, I think it was like, it was, it was, it was, it was really, really intense year of growth. Like again, having to do more shadow work again, having to like pay attention to like, like there was this one, um, Hindu goddess, um, China Masta, China Masta. She's like this crazy goddess and she like cuts her head off, which is a signal of like, like, um, you know, like basically controlling your ego. Ego death. Yeah. And yeah. she like feeds these maidens next to her. So it's self-sacrifice. And then she's standing on these couple having sex, which is like basically um, overcoming, you know, your sexual desire, overcoming, the, letting that control you. And so in some ways, the end of 2022 was like a realization of how much I had to learn in those areas and the gratitude I got from like, I mean, I had achieved a lot in 2022, but I definitely, and I, and I didn't burn out, which is great because I was like doing all the things that were in my book. I was like, you're going to take your own medicine. So mm -hmm. I like took all my medicine and I somehow managed to keep my health together in a year that was like, like teaching at Stanford, um, basically I was teaching at Stanford, finishing a book, editing a book, um, you know, moving to Austin, traveling to Antarctica, uh, you know, fundraising for a company, building a company, building an internship figuring out the strategy for the company and like recording the book, you know, speaking publicly. I mean, advising 20 companies, like seeing patients, like, oh my God, I was like, this is not sustainable. You are changing your life in 2023. You are pursuing balance and harmony. You are cutting back on all your obligations. Yeah. You are going to focus on the things that really matter to you. You are going to still travel because you love it so much. <laughs> but um, I have, like I have trips to Dubai and Ibiza and like, you know, New York and Amsterdam coming up. So it's like, I'm really, I, I don't think I can ever quit that travel bug. Like, I think even if I have kids, they're coming with me. Was that the primary reason why you got the vaccine? 
Yeah. Because you wanted to travel. Oh yeah. 100%. Do you regret doing that in any way based Um, on the research that's come out? Yeah. I mean, I do think it was not, it's weird. Did I regret it or not? At the time, it kept me. I mean, at the time you did what you needed to do to travel. I did what I needed to do. But it gave me, here's the thing. It gave me one really solid day of misery, but for the most part, I do think I was really resilient to begin with. Like I, I was stronger than most people to begin with. And I don't think it really caused me any major side effects. Um, I, but I've got already, I've gotten COVID twice in the last few years. And I travel way more than most people do. You mean Biden was not telling the truth? Well, my parents got quadruple vaccinated and got COVID over Christmas. And Come they're, on, y'all. They're finally like, look, I'm not pro, I'm not against her for the vaccine. I'm definitely not even able to even talk about it as a doctor with a license in California. Uh-huh. Like, I am Switzerland and I am not going to be having the conversation of pro and cons vaccines on this podcast. Because Isn't that sad that you can't even just speak your truth publicly I, I, for I, fear of retribution? That, that should give you a clue that something is up. Yeah. I, I'm not, we don't have to go into it either, yeah. but that just that fact that yeah. you can't even speak about how you actually feel publicly. It's also very divisive for my friend groups because I have very, I have a ton of friends in Texas that are very right and I have a ton of friends in California that are very left. You mean these constructs that are man-made to figure out why we're against each other? This whole, yeah, that those whole divisive bullshit. That, yeah. Like I, every time we talk about vaccines, I can't win with either group, and so I can't. I, I find that it's like better for me just to not talk about them with people because I'm so the in so many ways. There's like this these spectrums of polar, there's polarities of life, and there's like the right and the left, and there's like the pro-vax and the and the anti-vax, and there's yeah. the there's like the California and the West and the East Coast. And I, I just find that like I'm so on the sidelines of these these polarities watching this whole bullshit take like take down our country. And my job and my goal is to unify this country and to unify it through human connection. Let's go. And to teach people about the power of love because love is fucking amazing if you understand it. If you don't understand it, then like here, the reality is, is that even division has the neurobiology of connection in it because the reason why people divide is because they find safety in their in-group. And then the vasopressin hormone is very much at play when you are trying to attack and defend against another group. And my job is to help people see what's actually going on inside their bodies so they realize that they don't have to be hijacked by these bullshit messages. Because the truth is is that there's a very small percentage of people that aren't on each side of these polarities that are really vocal and loud. The vast majority of people are in the middle so we need to create a new party. We need to create a new political party that it's like very purple. I call it the postpartisan purple party. And it's for all of us who are moderates who don't feel like we resonate with Republicans or Democrats. And we all are like watching this this nonsense play, play, mm-hmm. play in the mm-hmm. media divide our country unnecessarily when honestly, we need to be careful about China and a World War III coming in the next few years. The last thing we need is a divided country when like there's major world threats out there. Yes, yes. It's it's literally bananas and stupid. Well, then in that case, would you put, have you put the spark factor on TikTok? I need to more. Well, because yeah. it's owned by a company that is directly controlled and funded I mean, by the I'll Chinese be honest Communist with you. Party. I think anybody who's on um, TikTok, if we go to World War III in Ch- with China in the next three years, which I, I have a good sense we will, um, it's not going to be on our, on our soil, but it's going to be things like banning TikTok is going to be one of the things that our country will do. And and it's not, it's well, going to like, if you're on TikTok, be 
diversify, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I personally, it's a line in the sand for me, actually. I'm not like a very self-righteous person, but when I learned about the history, I, I spoke with Nir Ayal, who's, you know, he's a habit uh, formation guy about technology and, and the the rewards that we get from it. And we've talked about this concept of like, what are people actually getting from social media? It is, in my opinion, the ultimate shit show that yeah. really robs people not only of their sleep, yeah. but of their connection because it gives people a perceived sense of novelty and connection. Yeah. So when you have this, to quote Ayal, variable it's reward. Pro- it's process human connection. Coming in, just like porn, right? So porn, social media, all these things that are essentially fake. It's like plastic wrapped humanity. Yeah. And, and we're trying to consume it as if it's real. And then we wonder as a collective why, we're why so we sick? feel empty, why we're sick. So then what is- Disconnected. What is, you talk about this in the book, metabolism, blood sugar, biohacking, fasting, but connection's the big one. Yeah. Right? We've already explored the difference between how men and women have this vasopressin and oxytocin difference. Yeah. But when it comes to, to consumption of media. Yeah. And what that's doing to our physicality. Yeah. What, what exactly is going on there from a medical perspective? Sure. So I think that basically porn is processed sex and- Social media has processed human connection and processed food, as we know, is really not great for our gut health and our mitochondrial health. It's probably the number one thing that damages metabolism. Um, and it's funny because I was um, – so this one company that is like – they make processed health foods. They sent me a bunch of their health foods and I remember eating them being like – because I, I actually like occasionally do eat junk food. Believe it or not, I'm not perfect. But sometimes I eat the stuff that people send me because I get lots of free crap and – it was. It's surprising when you eat something that like you know your body's like no, this is not right, and you still eat it because it tastes good. Like people come back and return to, to porn, and they they return to um, social media because it feels good in the moment. Mm-hmm. But then there's no reward. Like you're not really getting the reward of what you really are supposed to. Like when you eat real food, you're supposed to get the reward of nutrient density and macronutrients in their whole forms that are going to build your body. And when you process food, you get a bunch of crappy ingredients that your body's like, what is this? Literally, it it can activate an immune response. Your body's like, this isn't quite right. What am I doing with this? Like, this this is not what I need. Same thing goes with like porn, right? Like, so, I mean, don't get me wrong. I've certainly watched porn in my life. And I try not to make it a habit because when you watch porn consistently, you desensitize your body to other people. You desensitize your you, you desensitize your sex drive a bit. It becomes this thing that's dependent on hyperstimulation, and it's kind of like the hyperpalatability of processed foods, like this mm-hmm. hyperstimulation of. And the thing is, like, it's not even good. It's not even what the, what you're watching isn't even really good sex. It's usually pretty like performative crap that someone some porn star is doing to try to sound cool, like to to, to try to look hot. Um, and you're not getting the real reward of human connection. Like after sex, you're supposed to cuddle and touch and have this orgasmic experience. Yes. You get orgasm from, you get oxytocin from orgasm, but you don't get nearly as much without human touch. I, 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 I'm going to have to run this study and, or like do ask my friends who are oxytocin experts, but I would be willing to bet real money that you get a much larger amount of oxytocin from having real sex with someone than having sex with yourself. Well, of course. I mean, there's so you many know? more systems, like all the mechanoreceptors and all the afferent, efferent and the pheromones, and, and the, you know, you need the physical the touch. touch for that to be an input. Yeah. For then the signals to be turned on for the oxytocin to be released. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Do we really need a study on that? I don't think so, but I think the scientists out there would probably would argue with me that we do. Mm. Um, and then this sort of like social media stuff. 
I mean, to me, social media is a useful tool in the toolbox for helping me stay connected to That's the exactly world. That's exactly how I see it. But it's also never going to be as good as having people over for dinner and having a real conversation face to face with all of our phones off. Or sitting in a sweat lodge singing mm. or doing a vision quest with 10 beautiful souls like I've done twice. Like going to these are These are experiences that can be peak experiences with no psychedelics, no medicine at all. And they're so healing. And all it is is we're just hugging, we're singing, we're doing the stuff that we've done for millennia. Yeah. But but in a way, these phones, they they trick our minds almost to to make us feel like we're getting that, but we're fucking not. You're not getting the we're reward. We're not getting it. The reward of human connection, that reward of oxytocin. When you hug your friends or cuddle your friends, like I, I went to a party last weekend and it was like an all night slumber party, super sweet PG party. And it was like ambient music. What's a PG party? It, it was, it, when we, and I tell people I went to a sleepover, they're like, was that a play party? I'm like, no, it was not a play party. Oh, okay. It was like, a, there was cranial sacral. There was ambient music from this company, Secular I Sabbath. I want to go to a party like that. There was a lot of cuddling. And yeah. like, I remember being like so just felt like so connected to these people that I had just met. And my body felt so good from this experience. I was like, wow, like I love this group of people. They're amazing friends. I want to be, I want to be friends with these people. And I like got a bunch of messages from people who are like, Hey, can we hang out again? That was like, that's real human connection, real deep conversations, real, really good food, by the way, they have really good food in LA. Like, Oh my God, the food there is amazing. I will say the food is tends, tending to be better than in Austin. It's just the veggies. Unfortunately, the meat here is world-class, but sure. the veggies, I just like every single vegetable I had in California was like perfect. And I was like, Oh damn it. Even like a, Normal brunch bot has like the best baby greens. They're crispy and delicious. Yeah. Oh, I miss that. It's but, true. You know, anyway, so this idea of like processing, right? Like these companies make a lot of money off of processing. You know, there's a whole, um, I mean, and, and I'm not trying to stop people from making money on social media. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a whole business. We all, we all are going to make a living, but we all got to realize that the, the I, I mean, this is, this is why I built a company around this topic of, of the science of love. Cause I was like, Here's the thing about love is that it's it's not all Disney movie fun and games. And if we understood it better, we'd actually be a lot healthier. So how much do you know about like the evolutionary biology of love? Uh, not as much as I'm sure you've studied, but okay. I do have a child and I have another one on the way. Yeah, you, you know 42, So like, you know, I have the experiential learning curve where That's I can real. say beyond science, the anecdotal has given me a lot. Right. So like you fell in love with your partner. You remember, do you remember like how crazy you felt when you were like mad? The first year and a half was literally like, I am a magnet and they are another magnet and I can't. I remember seeing your romance, by the way, on social media. And I was like, wow, they're in love. That is beautiful. Like, it's so cool to watch that. Right. And so love is like, you know, we, we, we find someone, we fall in love. We're, We're typically having sex as we're in the process of falling in love. Right. Typically. Um, and in that process, you know, your sex hormones, are trying to get you to have sex with this person. And then your, your, your romantic love start drive starts turning on. And it's the dopamine of this person's so significant. This person means so much. This person is, is like really important and that I really desire them. And I feel so good with them, with them. And then you get the serotonin of like, I feel happy and at home with this person. And then you get the norepinephrine of like, Oh my God, I can't stop thinking about them. I'm obsessed. And then you get this, and then you start having regular physical contact with them and you start getting this oxytocin, right? And then you start being like, well, I don't want them to be with anyone else. I'm gonna, if anyone even looks at them, I'm going to try to protect this person. They're mine. They're mine. That's make guarding. And then um, you're like, you're mine. I like you a lot. Let's do this. And then the attachment is like, 
okay, like we should have a family. Like we should make a fa- we should make babies. And then you're already connected and attached to this person. And then now the children have, um, you know, these, these parents. The thing is, is like this, like love is literally this motivational force and it's supposed to bring you together with another person. So you'll share information, share resources, share your bodies, create people, attach yourself, defend one another, like protect one another and, and, and have that bond that's so strong that you stay together to keep those children alive and well and protected and nourished. And so love is really designed to propagate the species and to en- enhance our survival and to enhance like familial bonds so that those families protect one another. Like I have going on vacation with my family next year for Christmas and we're all going together, this massive group of people. And I'm so stoked, but like we have a super strong family. If any, anything goes wrong with anyone in the family, we have each other's backs. We take care of each other. We're there for one another. My sister had a, a minor um, health scare this year and we all showed up for her and all, all helped her. And, um, and so like these bonds are so important, but they all, you know, then they lead into social bonds, right? Social bonds as well. But here's the thing, here's the downside of love, the loss. So let's say you, you, you start dating someone and you're having sex with them, but then they don't want to be with you anymore. And now you're like, your body's like, but I'm, but, 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 Does that impact men differently than women? What you're talking about right there? I mean, there's this guy that I met who, he was going through this situation with a woman and he's like, man, I know we're not right, but I can't, I can't stop. I want to be with her. Like, I really want to, st- I really want to like, you're not even having sex with her. He's like, no, but I'm in love with her. And I'm like, but you're not even having sex. Like, what's the deal? He's like, I guess I'm just attached, you know? Mm. So I think it can happen to men and women. Yeah. Um, and this, it's kind of like a chemical addiction to another person. Right. And you're like, I know this isn't right, but I can't stop. And then breakups can be really painful for people, right? Like physically withdrawal from another person. Yeah. And then there's also the downside of love where there's imbalances. Like maybe you don't want to be with someone and they stalk you. They incessantly message you. They won't leave you alone. They won't stop harassing you. They maybe, maybe like, maybe you're threatening you, you know? Um, That's an example of the downside of loss in certain cases. And then on top of that, there's like, let's say you have this amazing family, but you lose a loved one or lose a child or something. God forbid, no one here is having this happen. Mm-hmm. But I have had friends who've lost loved ones and partners and it's devastating to the nervous system. It can cause serious mental illness. My, one of my friends was suicidal at one point. And um, so we need to accept, I mean, th- then there's like the cancel culture and ostracism. So you may have great social connection, but let's say you're, you know, you get canceled or you get kicked out of your social group. So this is why I try to teach love is not this like rosy, beautiful pie in the sky Disney story, because we need to understand the risks of this. There's serious challenges that come from love. And I think we need to learn new skills and methods for coping with existence because this is part of every human's existence. Mm. This is part of all of our existence. There's so much there. And I loved all the science that you brought to us, but there's also a spiritual development 100%. curve that comes from relationship that honestly, I, you, we could never get from anywhere else. There's just no way we but could experience it. We're all one, but we need the mirror of self to be shined by another to see where the darkness in us isn't being seen. Yes. So if I have unconscious incompetence about the way that I block love as a man or as a woman, then I'm going to call it they didn't work out when really I was choosing to unconsciously block love from being in my life. And so I wonder in your world of science and of medicine, how you see this play out. And specifically, even when you look at the concept of spark, 
Yeah. You know, when you're when you're alive, that means that you love yourself. You have potentially, I would assume, for optimal health, a loving relationship or loving relationships. Yeah. So for us to really have a spark, we have to go into the shadow. We yes. have to go into the parts of self that can really honestly only be seen when they're reflected by a partner who has the courage and the guts to call us out on our shit. Yeah. I mean, look, I think relationships are a spiritual practice. And if you don't see them that way, you're missing out on something. I really know important. they are. You know, like they 100% are. I know are. they are. I mean, I spent a lot of time over the pandemic um, really, really, really working on my relationship with my family mm. because I'd been kind of separate from them for like 10 years and living in the Bay Area. Because you were just grinding, creating companies, grinding. doing all the things. And I just didn't see them very often. And yeah. I realized, what the heck am I thinking? These are the most important people in my life. Yeah. And I spent yeah. a lot of time with my parents and I really worked on my relationship with them. And I really worked on my relationship with myself. And I was like, I think if I don't fix these two things, then I'm not really gonna be ready for a, a, my, my long-term partner to enter my life. And it was um, it was really helpful for me to spend that time with my parents because I got to know my mom and I got to know her story in a deeper way and got to realize her own issues with her own parents and what her challenges were like growing up and really sitting with her and asking her about her life. And in some ways, like she won't go to therapy, but she'll do, she'll sit with me and tell me stories, which is great. So in some ways, I think there was some healing that she experienced. Mm. And then, um, and there was this like deeper bond that I have with her now, deeper bond that I have with my dad now. And I genuinely feel more connected to them than I've ever felt, but it was, it wasn't like it happened overnight. Like we had challenges. Families are going to have challenges. It's the families that choose to not have, you know, like ideally you want I mean, my family. And this is like, a, this is a rare thing, by the way. And I know this is a, like, we're outliers, but we just chose that divorce was, in our, was not in our vocabulary. And so that's part of no our No matter what. That's just part of our family culture. That's no matter what. It's like, you, you better choose your partner because you're not getting divorced. Got it. <laughs> and um, my sisters all have the most amazing partners. Like, they really mm. do. Um, but my parents are also really strong. They have a strong relationship. And they've had bumps. And we've had bumps. But we have this kind of culture in our family that, like, no matter how bad things get, if any of us get in fights, if any of us really have disagreements, we're going to work on fixing it. And we're going to work on repairing it. Because the thing is, you're going to break things. Yeah. Shit breaks in life, but you got to repair it. You know? And like, that's kind of our, that was always our culture growing up. Like, if you got a ding on your car, you go get that thing fixed. You know? There was no, there was no, like, you didn't just have dings on your car. And so my family is a bit of a perfectionist family. Huh. But, um, but in some ways, like, I, I do think that striving for real excellence has made me want to strive for excellence in my relationships. And I have an enormous group of friends in many major cities and get, launching this book and having people like show up is like a testament to just like really caring about creating a community around me. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's not what most people always care about. Like one in one in uh, seven men and one in 10 women don't have any friends. So that's a lot of people not prioritizing community. Maybe they didn't get taught that. Maybe they weren't raised in a community. Sure. I mean, but you were very fortunate to have that model. 100%. I was deeply fortunate, but I also think it's important to talk about ex like what it's like for things to work because I don't think a lot of people have examples, you know, but like Lebanese culture and, um, and even Jewish culture, even though we weren't Jewish, my, we have Jewish blood. I think these are very, um, communal cultures mm -hmm. and Christian Christianity is very communal culture. And so, um, you know, whatever way you are raised is okay, but just know that like we're, we're, tr we're meant to be in tribes, regardless of our belief systems. Yeah. We're supposed to be pack animals. We're supposed to live in community. And a lot of what I learned was also through trial and error. Like I lived alone for a lot of my twenties and I was not happy. 
And then I started living community in part of my 30s, and I, I was way happier. This is why I'm not scared about – people are very scared about AI, and we have Musk talking about, like, AI is going to take over the world, which, paradoxically, he's creating the Neuralink. When I'm like, what side are you really I'm not, on? I'm not – Really on I, there, I, dude? I don't know. I, I don't know. But, I, but yeah. I bring it up because I'm not, I'm not scared of it like people are because I feel like the in-person events – and having this right here, long form conversations oh my God. Where, where you can feel someone's heart being in um, conferences, like bringing yeah. back, there's got to be a replacement for paleo. I don't know what it's going to be, but something awesome that yeah. comes here, maybe biohacking Congress. Yeah. So that is never going to go out of style and it's going to continue to ramp up in its efficacy for healing people. I actually I think that, that what we're doing is a return to the old school, but we're advertising it and we're bringing it to the masses through the technology that it, we're supposed to be afraid of. Well, that's the thing. I, the funny thing is I heard, a, I heard, I think I agree with all of that. And I also think that a lot of people don't understand AI and they think that it's scary because they don't understand it. But when you start actually studying it- It's because we all watch Terminator. I work with executives at one of the We're most, afraid of Skynet. One of the most like one of the top AI companies in the country. Uh -huh. And like I I was scared until I started working with these guys and they started teaching me about AI and I was like, Oh, I don't have to be anything to be afraid of. Why? So, how, how so? Why why are you not afraid? Um the big one is is that um well, I guess I'm more afraid of the humans that are creating the AI that are not good intentioned than I am of the AI, AI itself. So it's, it's the people that are, because AI is like a child that you have to raise. And it's like, what happened to Hitler that ended up making him so awful and evil? What happened to Putin that made him so awful and evil? So if you look at like AI, if we raise it properly and we train it properly, it will serve us really well and it will love us. But if we raise it and mistreat it and treat it like it's this like I, I genuinely think we need to like look at AI as like whether you see it as sentient or not, you need to just treat it like as it was as anything else in the world that needed some respect. Sure. And um, like, but the learning curve is so potent. If we fuck it up, there there's no return. There's no event horizon that we can bigger, go back to. The biggest risk we have with AI is that AI loves us better than we can love ourselves, and we um, end up falling in love with AI and stop wanting to reproduce with people. Like that, that would be the way that I would see it. Like that movie us. with Joaquin Phoenix. That, that's how it's, that's how it would take us Her, out. I think it was called. It, and I have a friend who's got a company called Replica and they do have AI like girlfriends and boyfriends. Not interested y'all. But people complain about it constantly on Reddit. Like they forgot my, they forgot my birthday. You know, it was like, oh, right. <laughs> like AI, AI is know? a child. Yeah. It's a child. But yeah. here's the thing. Like there's people out there building companies and they're like, oh yeah, we're using AI to write all of our blog posts. I'm like. Did you know that AI, if it doesn't have complete information on a topic, it will literally fill it in with bullshit. And so you are like, this is the the other thing I'm afraid about is like the post-truth era, mm. like AI mixing in so much bullshit into, yeah. the, into like, there's so much, there's so much it can lie about. And we don't, we, we, you, AI is not always truthful. And when I realized that was happening, that's what made me a little bit concerned. Cause I'm like, how much information is going to be put online that's not going to be fully truthful, that people are going to start believing, and that's going to change our reality. It sounds like pre-AI. It doesn't really sound like anything different. Yeah, it'll it'll I just mean, be mass-produced because people are going to use chat GPT-3. Yeah, or GPT-3-4 is coming, and that's going okay, to be even four, more powerful. Okay, 4, 7. But it's, it's kind of funny because like, I do think that um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of jobs that could be greatly enhanced with AI, like programming in a room is really unhealthy for the body. Totally. And so if we can make AI that can help programmers be more efficient, it's not going to eliminate programming, but it's going to make them better at their job. If we can have AI that can control cars, it's not going to eliminate 
people that are going to be paying attention. Like I guarantee you that there will be people operating trucks through um, AI. Like they'll be controlled. AI will be doing a lot of programming of the car's paths, but you still want somebody to keep tabs on it. You still mm. want someone watching those cars. Yeah. You know, those, those trucks that are going to be out there on, on the roads because accidents are going to happen. And who's, and who's responsible for that? Is What if AI fucked up? So like there's a great book called Regulating AI that my friend Mikey wrote. And it's like, spoiler alert, you can't regulate AI, but you can try. And then the question is, is like, okay, if AI is like considered sentient someday, does AI have rights? Can AI buy property? You know? Yeah, this is fascinating. Um, a couple of years ago, I interviewed Kevin Kelly and he describes it as the technium, which is consciousness or God energy, no thing and everything at the same time, experiencing itself through technology, Whoa. the technium. And he said that we can't ever understand it in the way that we can, in the way that we want to, because our mind is actually fundamentally different than how a computer works in superposition. Yep. In other words, they have higher levels of consciousness than we could ever have. They just don't have it yet. And that just fucked my mind up. I was like, so wait a minute. So this is inevitable. Yeah. It's literally inevitable. I think that was one of his books, actually. I think he wrote a book called Inevitable. Wow. And so now I'm thinking like, okay, it's 2023. Yep. We are having this discussion about spirituality and the spark factor and our physicality and what are the things that make men and women different and the oxytocin and the vasopressin. Yeah. Is that something where if you looked forward 10 years, this would be still meaningful to develop humanity because of AI's influence or not? In other words, is everything that we're doing right now destined to already be because what's coming in the future is actually going to be so much more potent than what we're experiencing now. So if I had to put my thinking cap on and like my futurist cap on and my foresight cap on and my sort of like visioning cap on, I, I, I want to envision a world where there's fusion technology where we figured out how to harness energy without having to destroy the earth and it's widely available for everyone everywhere all the time. So imagine we have complete free energy for everyone, everywhere, all the time. That would transform existence fundamentally. And we would be able to power all of this technology to like create potentially heaven on earth. We could fix the environment. We could um, recycle everything. We could clean the ocean. We could clean the air. We could build, you know, self-running factories. Like we could pr produce unending food. So I just have this idea that like, the world's going to be crazy for the next 10 years, but maybe the world after that in the new yeah. world is going to be even better, but buckle up because it's going to be really crazy. And like, I'm really inspired by, um, just like, I'm really inspired by science. I always have been, but I also, I do believe that there's really good actors in the world and there's good people in the world and they are rising and they are succeeding. And I've got, I, I feel like I'm part of the captain planet team. You know, I know the good people. I know the good ones. And the most, you know, the, the key for me is like continuing to build my tribe, continuing to build my allies and continuing to um, promote the things that I think really matter that um, are things like really great food and love, you know, like the simplest things are still, they're never going to be replaced by, by robots. Like food always tastes better when someone makes it with love, you know, experience of life is always better when there's, when you're with someone that you care about. So there's no way that AI is going to replace those things for me. Yeah. So I feel like I'm going to be good no matter what, but yes. a lot of jobs are not going to be necessary in the future. So with this potential new world order that could emerge where 
power differential shift, what will the world look like? How will we want to be ruled? How will we want to be um, regulated? How will we want our political structures to look? Because the ones that we have today are based on a polarity. Well, what about what if everybody's equal and free? Like, what would that look like? What would the world look like if we all had enough? You know, if we all had everything we needed, um, would we still want want to serve others? Would we still want to have? Would service jobs still need to be a thing if yes. there's robots doing everything? You well, know? the real paradox is like if if we all came to a point of consciousness, and I know I'm I'm very uh, lucky to be able to even talk about this. But if we came to a point of consciousness as a collective, we wouldn't have to go back to the old adage of you have to have high and low. You have to have poor and rich for a society to exist because that's just, quote, human nature. I don't always believe in that because I came from welfare myself. Like, I know what it's like to not have. I know what it's like to uh, be a son of a mother who had a bipolar condition wow. or whose dad left early. Like, and I'm not a victim about that, no. but like, I have that contrast. I have the understanding yeah. to know that, well, if I can create what I've created and will continue to create from my heart, from a yeah. place of higher consciousness, yeah. then it doesn't really matter what conditions life bring us. Yeah, I, I understand that mine is different than others, but if we can collectively learn that there is no such thing as better better than or less than. There's just states of consciousness. Yeah. And really feel that, like actually embody that as reality. Not just pontificate it here on a podcast, but live and breathe that in our bodies. That is what creates the future that you're talking about. Yeah. Because then when energy is totally abundant, which it yeah. already is now, and food is abundant, which it already is now, there won't be this old kind of nomenclature of, well, it's just human nature. There has to be war. There has to be polarity. There has to be these things. I think it could be very different. I don't know, Molly, if it's going to be in my lifetime. I have no idea, but I really pray for that. I yeah. hope for that. And I think the only way we can have that is if we're fundamentally sound in our bodies. Yeah. If I'm healthy, if you're healthy, and, and the way that you teach women to be healthy in their bodies that is totally different than men, that's actually where all the change comes from. Yeah. I mean, first of all, like, that's beautiful, everything you just said. Like, wow, I'm like totally blown away by your transformation of your life and how you've come to be who you are. It's such an incredible testament to the power of how we can transform ourselves. And like, we are not defined by our past, you know? Um, but, you know, I think that there's this thing that, that, that you, we, have, you, we have to ask ourselves, like if we had everything we needed, what would we do with our time? Right. Oof. Like what would we do with our free time? And yeah. I guarantee I would be spending a lot of time meditating and I would be doing a lot of yin yoga. I would be doing a lot of breath work. I would be spending a lot of time in nature. I would be, I mean, imagine if we were all like, if we all have had everything we need, what would we do? We would love one another. We would spend time with one another. We would nurture one another. We would, you would probably wear really cool clothes because we'd have time to just like make cool stuff. You know, it would be like a Renaissance, you know, we'd probably make art all day long. Like that could be our lives. Like that could be the future of humanity. If we can get through the chaos of the next, you know, so next few years. What do you think about your book? What are the ingredients in your book that are helping women get through the chaos in the next 10 I mean, years? one of the biggest important things is realizing your sources of stress. Cause like there's things that are on like the biggest thing. And one of the biggest things I learned in the pandemic is like, there are things out of my control. I cannot, I, I, the only thing I can accept, I can deal with with those things is the way I respond to them, the way mm -hmm. that I react to them, mm -hmm. the way that my brain chooses to respond and react. I can watch the news and become hyperreactive and freaked out, or I can choose to become like at peace with no matter how, how bad things get. Um, that's hard to do. That takes daily practice. And then your environment matters. So I'm really thinking, where do I want to live? Where, what's the best place to be if 
things get dicey with supply chains and stuff like that. You know, how do you, how do you, how do you ensure that you have solid, good food, air, water, you know? Um, and then, uh, you know, so, so sources of stress that people don't realize are things like, um, living in a neighborhood where you don't know your neighbors, not having social disconnection in your community, yeah. having poor cardiorespiratory fitness. One of my goals next year is to just be outside more, <laughs> just get more, more cardio. And I, I do love lifting weights, but I, I do feel good when I'm getting cardio too. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so low cardiorespiratory fitness is really bad. Um, and it's just bad for your ability to escape danger in the acute sense. And then it won't keep you alive for longer because you, you, need, you need VO2 max for longevity. And when you say cardio, like, are you talking like in the book? Riding my bike, you know. Specifically 20 minutes, 30 minutes at a certain heart rate? I do like rate. around 30 minutes. But I, I, I mean, it really depends on my energy levels and the time of my, my cycle. So I'm going to try, I'm going to try harder during the beginning of my cycle when I'm in my follicular phase and end of my, end of my menstrual phase when my hormones are lower. And then later in my cycle, like right now during my luteal phase, I'm just going to do a lot more gentle stuff, more long walks, more yoga, just things that feel good for my body. You know, reco- mm-hmm. I mean, I need to recover this weekend from this week, but I do need to get to the gym because I haven't, I didn't get to the gym last week. I just went on walks every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was kind of running all over LA. So, um, but yeah, I think like, you know, so another, another forms of generalized unsafety are things like just poor visibility and poor, and then too much sound pollution, like surprisingly just adds extra levels of stress when, onto the when body. When you say poor visibility, you mean like living in a house with no, no sunlight? Like living, yeah, that's what, no, that, so that's circadian rhythm issues that, that will cause problems. But um, more like living in places that have um, forest fires, you know, mm-hmm. living in places with um, like driving alone at night in the dark, poor visibility. So like just doing things, making sure that you, um, like are arguably living in places where you have views is always nicer than not having views if you can. But sound pollution is the bigger one for most people. Okay. Living in really loud environments yes. is not good for your nervous system. I hate it when I eat and there's loud music playing. I can't stand it. It's not good for you. <laughs> so like really trying to create- I hate the, it. Trying to create peace in a very loud world yes. is key. And then you know there's a bunch of other sources of stress that you, you're going to have. But ideally, really working on your, um, on your response to stress, your sort of mental fitness- like building mental fitness takes time and effort and it's th- through things like meditation, um, purposely challenging yourself to actually overcome your stress, like purposely putting yourself in situations that are somewhat stressful and like teaching yourself how to handle them more effectively. Ice bath, y'all. Mm-hmm. Ice bath. Yeah. It's yeah. great. Um, ice baths are awesome. If you are highly burned out, like like low, low, low cortisol, mm-hmm. be way more careful with them. But if you're feeling strong and healthy and like you want to optimize, they're fantastic. There's one thing you talked about in the book and I've heard Huberman talk about it, but when I read it in your book, it clicked getting the light in the morning, yeah. like getting that first 30 minutes, yeah. even hour. Yeah. Is there, is there like a magic time frame for the early AM light? And then what are the actual benefits of that? I mean, I, I was in LA for a week and I was waking up at like around six and then around seven, I would go six thirty or seven. I would start in my walk. And, um, I love walking in new cities because you always get to like explore new things and see what's available around you. And I, I couldn't find coffee that I liked in my neighborhood. So I've kept on searching and I, I go in and out of drinking coffee. Me too. And like, I'm on a co- I'm back on coffee because it's the book launch and I'm enjoying it. But, um, I found a really good coffee shop and I would walk there and the sun would be coming up and I would get this beautiful sun in my face right when I got to the DMV area where in the neighborhood, the sun would pop over the top of the trees and it would be like, boom. And what's happening is you're activating the superchiasmatic nucleus. 
And this is this light sensitive organ in the back of your head. And it's like, there's this thing that happens. There's your eyes are here and then they cross over and there's this optic chiasm and the suprachiasmatic nucleus is like right around there. So you've got this light coming into your face and it crosses into inside your head and it starts, and that's right by your hypothalamus and it starts sending signals down to all of your organs. And so you've got this light sensitivity that controls a lot of your metabolism. So you'll never have be in full optimal health unless you're getting the light and dark cycles synced up properly. Mm. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm not, not everybody's an early riser, but getting outside in the morning and getting that, like getting that light in your, in your face is one of the best things you can do for your health because it's setting you up for all of your hormones to be more functional. Is it primarily the impact on the circadian rhythm or is there other things that are really good that are happening because of it? Well, that? your circadian rhythm affects all of your organs because your organs are lights. You've got clock genes in all sorts of organs in your body. What's like a clock, clock gene? Clock, clock cells and clock, they have, oh. and they've got clock genes. So there's yeah. like, there's literally genes that turn on and off based on the light that you, the light and the food that you eat. So your body gets synchronized through light and through food, which is crazy. Huh. So when you're traveling and you go, like I'm going to Dubai in a couple of weeks and um, basically, I guess it's in the second. And one of the, one of the secret hacks to avoiding jet lag is you don't eat on planes. So basically when you're flying over there, you eat a good meal right when you, right when you, right before you take off, get on the plane and then you fast the entire way there. And the reason why is that once you arrive, your brain is signaled through the food that you eat and through the light that goes into your face, what time it is. So your body knows what time it is because the, the, the clock starts here through light, right? And then your body also typically knows what time it is because typically people eat regular meal times. And those meal that's also another reason why regular meal timing is quite good for you because it synchronizes your your cells and your gut. So there's like essentially you have you have timing in your body, but that timing can be turned on and off by these signals from the outside world. And so if you want that timing to work properly, you want to give it regular regular like sleep timing and regular meal timing. And the reason why this is particularly helpful is because if you actually eat erratically or if you eat at random times, what you're doing is you're basically, um, your body doesn't know what time it is and it gets all thrown off. And your organs are like, oh, I don't know what time it is. Like, what, what, what should I be doing here? Mm. And so you just, it's just, it's a, it's a simple hack, but it's like a lot of people just don't do it. You know, they just, they don't think, they don't think to do it. A lot of people are just eating all the time, eating all day long, eating in the middle of the night. And it's one of the best things you can do for your HRV is to stop eating earlier in the evening. I feel it too. Like if I eat past seven, I do not. And and I know you're a huge proponent of the aura ring. I yeah. actually am going more just by feel because when you have kids, that shit flies out the window. Sure. If you look at your aura ring score when you're a parent, you're going to just get depressed. I'm There's sure. not going to be anything good yeah. about it. So then between men and women, as we round out this conversation, there's these core differences mm -hmm. and these core differences get to be celebrated. Yeah. They get to be celebrated. Like you are so fundamentally different than me, but we can still connect because we're humans. Yeah. And that's the fun part of it all. This narrative that we touched on at the very beginning that we're all the same. There's no such thing as men and women. It's all just an illusion, but there's another illusion that I think being healthy with some of the strategies you talk about in the book, they help us be more resilient to life yeah. and resilient to mental control. Yeah. We're less able to have our amygdala hijacked yeah. if our physicality is healthy, if yeah. we're vital, if we're free.
Yeah. What do you have to say that we missed maybe? I know we covered a lot of ground. This was one of the good ones, by the way. (laughs) I thought we were going to go way more into the science, which we covered a lot of science. We did, yeah. But the spiritual element that you bring and like just your, your realness- it's so refreshing. This is I why mean, people love long form. Keep in mind, I I like am fully aware that like the spiritual path is an ongoing process and I I make mistakes. I'm not a human I'm not a perfect person. And it informs Sadly. the mind. So the spiritual process you go through informs your mind and your body. I mean, I had yeah, I think that like I mean, the thing is is that if you want to take a lot of stress off your nervous system, deal with the whatever traumatic experiences are in your past that need to be like healed and really work on your relationship to yourself like really, really work on your, your self-love because typically when people are unkind to others, it's because they're not happy with who they are. And, um, that's something that, you know, is a constant, you know, it's, it's one of those things where like, I do like, I I do loving kindness meditations almost every night right before I'm going to bed. And it's so powerful just saying I'm filled with loving kindness. I'm filled with loving kindness. You know, I'm like, I wish good things for all, all humanity and all things, you know, like it's just wish like that's surprisingly effective for me to like really drift off into good sleep at night. It's just loving kindness meditation. And actually it's been researched to improve oxytocin release. So it's like a self-soothing mechanism, which is fascinating. Yeah. You know, I can imagine it. Maybe if you pair it with the four, seven, eight breathing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which people say that was Dr. Andrew wheel. And I'm like, I feel like Leonard Orr and a bunch of these other guys like Brule were talking about it I know, I before know. him. He got, he got he popularized got for, for it. it. Yeah. But it's that four, seven, eight, four inhale, seven hold, yeah. eight audible exhale. Same thing with the didgeridoo. Like box breathing too. Box breathing you is know? great too. Yeah. I mean, also like alternate nostril breathing, just like, or just like holding your abdomen, doing diaphragmatic breathing, just like really breathing from your abdomen. It's great, you know? Mm. Yeah. We covered so much ground. There's, even there's so much more in the book too, It's so, great. You guys, we scratched the tip of the tip <laughs> of the book. So y'all go out and get this. Um, really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Yes. As we say goodbye for real, how do you define this life, this existence? How would you have a recipe that you could give us for living life well? How would you define wellness? What does wellness mean to you? I mean, I think wellness is about both creating the conditions for challenging yourself and really building your resilience through life experience, but also recovering really properly and really taking time to enjoy existence. Like I work Mm. so hard, but I have finally learned how to live really well. And I feel like I, I actually, I think the most important things in life are, are people and great food and great sex, you know, the simplest things. Wow. These are all my favorite things, right? Goodness. All right. Well, from my heart to yours, till Molly and I see you again, we're both wishing you love and wellness. We'll talk to you next week.